Well, Drew is uh, out celebrating his anniversary. He did take Caitlin with him. We, anticip <laughs> we anticipate the, they'll be back, hopefully, by next Sunday. <clears throat> so thank you for being gracious to me this morning. I asked Drew when he asked me to preach, is, hey, let's uh, let me set aside First John and, and do something different because he's been doing such a great job of leading us through First John. I didn't want us to miss uh, anything that he was doing on that. And he said, no, no, I need you to go ahead and do this uh, part of First John because Advent is in two weeks and he wants to stay on schedule uh, to begin his Advent series. So he'll be back next Sunday. He'll finish up First John for us. And uh, then we'll, we'll start in, in Advent. So what we're looking at this morning is 1 John 5 and the first 12 verses of that. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the parent loves the child. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For the love of God is this, that we obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burden, burdensome. For whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has testified to his Son. Those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony in their hearts. Those who do not believe in God have made him a liar by not believing in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Word of God for the people of God. So, if you're not careful reading John, you end up, at least I do, getting a little bit dizzy as he says the same things over and over. And the more he says, I, maybe to clarify things, the more confused I get. Huh? And yet to me, there's this sweetness about John a little bit like a grandfather that comes across more than any other biblical writers. John likes to say, my little children. 
And John is night and day different from the Apostle Paul's writings, of course. Paul can come across as a bit of a, a lawyer, think Romans. He can take a topic, choose an approach, and build a case with supporting arguments for the conclusion he wants to make. Paul would have been a killer on any debate team, while John would have just frustrated his debate partners out of their minds with his circular language. Come on, John, get with it, dude. But if John, or if Paul is a lawyer, John's an artist. He, he strikes me as a Bob Ross with his happy little trees. Oh, look at this. Look at that. Oh, have you ever heard anything like that before? If Paul builds a case or makes a well-reasoned argument, John paints a picture. He, in a grandfatherly way, gently mysteriously teases out what he wants to say through all this repetition and symbolism and word pictures. But don't misunderstand, John is as good with words as Paul is. But if Paul aims for our head, John aims for our heart. We get introduced to all this in, in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And immediately we see this Genesis picture of creation. And John begins our little epistle that we've been spending time with the same picture. We declare to you what was from the beginning. And this word beginning paints the picture of creation. And John uses this technique over and over. Words found in his gospel, he reintroduces in his letter. And these words are freighted with meaning. They, they mean more than the words themselves say. John's word pictures carry big themes, big ideas, things of first importance. And taken together, they form this picture or maybe it's a mural, or maybe even a collage of who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and what it means to follow the way of Jesus. I'll give you some examples. In the Gospel of John, the word love is used 39 times in the NRSV. And it can refer to the love between the Father and the Son, the love of the Father for His children, the love of the children for the Father, and the love disciples are to have for one another. It's a picture of reciprocal, inclusive, uncontrolling, sourced-in-God love. And we see this same idea of love over and over in John's letter. But now John can't seem to quite make up his mind about it because in the Gospel, Jesus says, I'm giving you a new command, love one another. And John turns around in his letter and he says, I'm giving you an old command. But in 2.7, he gets a little confused because he says, well, yet I am writing you to, yeah, it's, it's kind of a new command. So which is it, John? Is it old or is it new? And maybe it's both. This old command that somehow in John's art is both old and new. But here's the thing. It's now made new and fuller and richer and deeper in Christ. Christ makes all things new. So it is an old command, but it's been made new like all things in Christ. And in our text this morning, right after he talks about love, John says that whatever is born of God conquers the world. And we've heard that language before as well. 
In the Gospel, in chapter 16, during the events of the Last Supper, His disciples are, are confused and upset and troubled. And Jesus says that so that you may have peace, I have conquered the world. And that's a remarkable enough declaration from Jesus given that in, He is shortly to be crucified, which looks anything like but having conquered the world. But now in this letter, John's saying the same thing about the followers of Jesus. Jesus has conquered, and so has the one or the ones born of God. This conquering that doesn't really look like conquering at first brush is the gift, one of the gifts of Jesus. You have conquered the world. And John likes to paint pictures with these words of water and blood and spirit. And we know the story in the gospel of Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, hey, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. And of course, Nicodemus is clueless. He says, well, it's going to be really hard for me to, to enter that birth canal once again. I'm not quite sure how I'm how this is going to happen. And so he totally misunderstands whatever it is that Jesus might be saying. And again, Jesus tells the woman at the well that if she had asked, he would have given her living water, which I think is something quite different than good old tap water or the H2O. And he seems to be alluding to the Spirit. Of course, the woman doesn't get that because her response is, oh, give me that water so I don't have to come back here to this stinking well every day. There's something going on with this water and Spirit. And John gets downright weird in the Gospel of John when he tells us that Jesus said to those to, to his followers, that those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life and I'll raise them up on the last day. And the crowd, no one understood that. Is this cannibalism or is this making us all vampires? And if we read that passage in John, in chapter 6, it says, from that time on, many no longer followed Jesus. That was too weird. That's a, that's a stretch too far for most of the folks. And finally, at the crucifixion, when John says Jesus gave up his spirit and the Roman soldiers come to ensure that Jesus is dead and they thrust the spear into his side, John tells us, outpours blood and water. And for whatever reason, John wants to include that detail that all the other gospel writers leave out. Water, blood, spirit, all important to John. And they all seem connected in some way in the life of Jesus. And again, John seems to think they are just as significant, this water, this blood, this spirit, just as significant in the lives of the followers of Jesus. What picture 
is this. And this word testimony. How many times this morning did we read testimony, testify? It's another one of John's pictures. It's in the gospel 33 times. It's 10 times in this letter. And when we hear testimony or testify, we often speak or think of our testimony. Oh, I need to testify. I need to bear witness. But that's not what John's saying. Blood, water, spirit. And finally, God Himself. All testify. All give testimony to us. That Jesus is the Messiah. The Son of God. And finally, John likes to use this phrase, eternal life. Eternal life is used 18 times in the gospel. If we were to just take the word life, it's used a gazillion times. But eternal life is a, a big picture for John. And unfortunately, when we read, when we see, when we hear eternal life, we've been led to think primarily of it as life after death. But John's words carry weight. They have layers of meaning. They show us a life that's a bit larger, more inclusive, more expansive than life after death. This Greek expression of eternal life seems to carry the meaning of the life of the ages in contrast to a life that is brief and temporary and passing. Paul might say it like this. This eternal life is about both this age and the age to come. This is life that is in the present and continuing on into an enduring future. Eternal life isn't simply future. Eternal life is now. And it's not just this mundane existence of the Monday blues, and thank God it's Fridays. We hear Jesus say in the Gospel, in chapter 10, that, you know, others come to steal and to corrupt, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, overflowing. This is eternal life in the present age, experienced even now. And in some way that John never fully explains, this is a life that through the presence of the Spirit has entered into a new kind of existence that is enduring and unending and abundant. And John carries this picture of life, of enduring life, to his letter, telling his readers six times that those who have faith in Christ already have this eternal life of the ages as testimony from God to us. So all these words and all these expressions are freighted with such meaning and taken together they present this mosaic of the gospel and of the life in character of the church, they depict the foundational characteristics of those who confess Jesus as the Messiah. And with as any good piece of art, 
you have to sit with John's pictures and you have to immerse yourself in them and you have to allow yourself to sink into the riches and the depths of what John the artist is showing us. And if you've ever seen a really good piece of art, you know that you never really exhaust what it has to offer. You come back to it, to the masterpiece, time and again, and each time you see something new, a nuance, a perspective, a depth, a shading, an emotion. And really good art, sometimes when we allow it to, opens a window into our own souls. And it allows us to see ourselves within that picture. And all of this is what John's doing in this masterpiece of a letter. Throughout the letter, he's called us his little children. And like a grandfather, he's invited us up on his lap and has shown us his picture book of life in Christ and what it looks like. So what's John painted for us? What's, what's this picture about? John never fully explains it like a good artist never fully explains his or her work. It's open to the viewer to see, to appreciate, to find interpretation for their own lives. But taking all of these words together that John's used, just maybe, maybe his picture of the gospel and life in Christ and of the church looks something like this. Love is the proof of our faith. Love for the Father. Love for Christ the Son. Love for one another. And this love doesn't come from ourselves for God is the source of all love God is the initiator of love the giver of love the receiver of love the responder to love and all love that flows from us toward God or toward another person or one another all of that love is sourced finds its genesis in God. And as John paints for us, this love is not burdensome or overbearing or controlling or smothering. Rather, it is free and abundant and enlivening. And here's the thing about this love. John says that it's our faith that conquers the world. But I suggest that it's love that strengthens and produces our faith. This love produces and strengthens faith that conquers the world. Which, yeah, it doesn't always look like we're conquering. It certainly doesn't always feel like we're conquering. But conquering, which is to say it persists through challenge and trial, it 
changes things for the better for those who encounter it. It pours out mercy and grace. It can endure in the face of death. And this faith generated by love conquers a world that opposes it. It conquers that world that has no idea what to do in the face of that kind of love. This is the love of God poured out through Jesus on believers. And it defines the very lives of those who would be followers of Jesus. And God's love is made evident mysteriously in this water and this blood and this spirit because they give testimony to God's love expressed through Jesus Christ. For centuries, writers have struggled with what to make of what all John meant about with his emphasis on water and blood. And some have said it shows water of Jesus born out of the water of birth, just like all of us were. And he died in blood, just as other humans die, to prove that Jesus was indeed flesh, that he was as human as you and I are human. It was to show that God's greatest act of love was to become flesh. And as Eugene Peterson says, to move into the neighborhood and live with us for a while. Others think that this water and blood refers to Jesus' own baptism and his death that led to his resurrection by the power of the Spirit. And that those who believe in Jesus follow in his steps through their own baptism and death that leads to new life by the power of the same Spirit. Still others say that, yes, water symbolizes the baptism, but the blood symbolizes the cup of the Lord's Supper. And that baptism and drinking the cup, these sacraments that we have, provide testimony, provide witness to us from God that we have been indeed born of water and the blood that flowed from the side of Christ on the cross. Or maybe we don't have to choose. Maybe all of those things are in some way true. And just as the Spirit of God hovered over the water in the beginning of creation, so the Spirit hovers over the believer born of water and lives within us in flesh and blood. And so John says we have this God's testimony in our hearts by the Spirit. And finally, that testimony from water and blood and Spirit is this, John says, God has given us eternal life. The life of the ages. The life that begins now and endures. It's abundant and free and enduring into the ages, present even now, and it's in Jesus Christ the Son. This is a part of John's picture of the Gospel. We certainly haven't exhausted it. The more we spend time with it, looking at it, living with it, 
immersing our lives in it, the more layers, the more depth we find in it, and the more we are changed by it. But this is God's goal for every human life. It's the life of the ages. And here, finally, finally, John is very clear. Whoever has the Son has this life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have this life. So, John's a really good artist. And he's shown us this masterpiece picture of life as it's meant to be. Of God as who God is. Of the church of how it's supposed to look and be and move and conquer in a world. And now, in all of this, John, in his painting, says, now, you come paint your own picture in your own place, in your own time, in our own way together. Paint your own picture of that gospel on the canvas of our own lives. That's what Grandpa John says. Let's stand and sing.